What does the Bible really say about war? Spoken by Pastor Sunita Pontan. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, you are great and worthy of our praise. And so this morning, God, we are grateful for the opportunity to have worshiped you, to be worshiping you, to pray, and also to study your word together. God, I have prayed and prepared, but Lord God, you must preach this word. Lord, I have studied your scripture, but would you send your Holy Spirit to breathe life And God, I have written words on paper, but would you write them on our hearts for us to make sense of the chaos (laughs) that is in this world? And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, amen, amen, amen. So um, a few months back on Thursday, February 24th, we watched in horror as Russia invaded Ukraine. And they claimed that Ukraine was not a proper state and that Russia rightly could expand its borders to bring in and include Russians living outside of Russia in the land that had been a part of the Russian Empire or the former Soviet Union. They uh, made up lies that Ukraine is being run by neo-Nazis and and that uh, they are persecuting ethnic Russians. And we, um, having watched this over some time, have come to believe that this is really just propaganda and just a land grab and power. And it's sad because it's not just military, but we're seeing civilians being harmed, right? Well, this past Thursday, if you pay attention to the news, you heard that North Korea's president threatened to use nuclear weapons against the United States or South Korea, and that would be catastrophic. There are conflicts happening all over the world, and as a result, one report estimates that there are two billion people in the world who are living in conflict-torn areas. Now, in America, we have been relatively shielded from fear and violence and death and destruction of ongoing war. So for many of us, this idea of war is just that. It's an idea. It's a theory. It's a matter of life and death, though, for so many people around the world. And we need to remember them in our prayers. And remember, we want to admit it or not, what happens around the world affects us, too. There are 5 million Ukrainians who have left Ukraine. And just like in any other country where war breaks out, people are seeking asylum and refuge, and some of them may come to the United States. There are supply chain issues and embargoes and bans and inflation, right, Um, on what we sell and what we receive in this country. And of course, there's always a question, what should the United States do? Should we be involved at all? Right? Do we send money? Do we send supplies? Do we send troops? War doesn't have to be taking place in America for it to affect all of us. And it's not just out in the world somewhere. If you read your Bibles, you will find a lot of war. Read the Old Testament. 
And it might be a little unsettling for some of you to, to be surprised at how much conquest and war and death and destruction takes place in our holy scriptures. If you are a fan of action and war movies and conquests, I invite you to the Old Testament. But for the rest of us, it might feel a little disturbing <laughs> to see so much war and death. How do we make sense of war even in the Bible? So as you know, we are doing this series, what does the Bible really say about war? And as you know, I feel like I always draw the small straw because <laughs> I get to talk about war today. <laughs> but sadly, it is a part of life. And we live in a broken and sin-filled world. And so we've got to make sense of what's going on in the world around us. And we've got to look to the Bible to guide us. Does a loving God favor war? Is there a difference between what we think is the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament? These are the questions we seek to answer this morning. So first, before we begin, before we dive in, I want to thank those of you either here in person or online who have uh, who've been a part of the military. We thank you for your service. I have two cousins who have served, and I am so grateful, um, not just for their service, but God's grace in preserving their life in the midst of conflict. War is not fun. It's not what we see on the movies, right? It's not what's in video games. If you speak with any veterans of war, you will know, you will see how sobering their stories are. And especially today, we lift up so many veterans who have struggled since returning home with mental health issues, with readjustment to civilian life, with homelessness, they're battling issues of suicide, just to name a few. So to our veterans, we thank you for going to war on our behalf. So we are going to do a lot of Bible today. We're doing a lot of Bible today. So I hope you have your Bibles handy. We're going to begin with the book of Joshua. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, describes the conquest of the land of Canaan, what is called the promised land. And now, and then how the land is allotted to the people of Israel following their 40 years in the wilderness. So this is after God through Moses delivers Israel out of Egypt. And if you read the book of Joshua, you realize that it's actually more like a, a book of action. There's adventure, there's conquest, there's war. And we really wouldn't expect to see some of the stuff that we read in the Bible. There's death. There's destruction, there's slaughter. But what you also learn is that war is not impulsive and it's not without justification. What the book of Joshua shows us is that war in the Old Testament has two main characteristics. War in the Old Testament has two main characteristics. It is initiated by God and it is purposeful. It is initiated by God and it is purposeful. So turn with me to Joshua chapter one, Verses one and two. Joshua chapter one, verses one and two. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. So the people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after God delivered them from Egypt. 
And because of Moses' sin, Moses is not going to be the one to take them into the promised land. It's going to be Joshua. God speaks to Joshua, telling him to cross the Jordan because God is going to give them that land. And as we will see, however, taking possession of a land is not going to be easy for them. Read the Old Testament. They will encounter the people that I call the ites. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They live on that land. And God will make them, God will make um, Israel successful over them, but it will not come without a fight. So caveat here, just a little sidebar, we should all remember this. God may have made promises to you in your life, but that does not mean it will not require work on your part. Amen? So God promises Israel that he's going to give them the land, but they have to do the work of fighting. And he does so for a reason. The reason we see God initiating this war between Israel and the people of the land of Canaan is to fulfill his promise to Israel. God is fulfilling the promise to Israel that he gave them 400 years ago under Abraham. So the wars that take place in the, in the book of Joshua are about God fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham and that he then reaffirmed through Isaac, Jacob, and Mo Moses. So turn back with me to Joshua chapter one. Now we're looking at verses three through six. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the, Eu the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because I will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. God is fulfilling his promise to Israel, but it will not come without fighting. Now, if you recall the story from Sunday school or maybe when you were a child, the first battle is the Battle of Jericho. Israel will enter the region through Jericho. The Lord commands them and he demonstrates his presence with them by telling them to have the Ark of the Covenant carried by the priest as they go into the land. These are to be holy wars, so the people had to sanctify themselves. The men had to be circumcised because they hadn't done it in the wilderness. And um, Joshua evil will even encounter the commander of the Lord's army. God initiates this war and he's with them to fulfill his promise to them. Eventually, they cross over the Jordan River, right? And you remember, they, they circle the, the wall one time, one time a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And they send out a shout um, after the priests blow the trumpet. You might remember the song from Sunday school, what? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. What we don't sing about is that after the walls came tumbling down, there is a bloody battle. Look at Joshua chapter six. Verse 20 through 21. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and took the city. They, devo they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. 
men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. The only people were spared, who were spared were Rahab and her family because she had helped out the people of Israel. Everyone else was destroyed. The Bible records other wars to capture the region with more specificity. Keep reading. And you'll see things like in Joshua chapter eight where they're conquering AI and, and God tells Joshua, hold out your sword, ambush the city, bring the men out and burn the city down. In Joshua eight, verses 24 through 26, we read, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he destroyed all who had lived in Ai. These were real wars, brutal wars. It's not fictitious, it's not figurative. This is real death and real destruction. In total, Joshua and the people of Israel conquered 31 kings and their nations, and it was purposeful. It's summarized in Joshua chapter 21. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. There was tremendous carnage, fighting and death, but God was fulfilling his promise to Israel. Now, some of you might be like me, and like you cringe at this idea of so much death and war and destruction, even if it is to fulfill a promise. You might be like me, who's wondering, God, I know there had to have been another way. But not only is God fulfilling the promise to Israel, but there is a second purpose. These wars are a consequence of sin. The second purpose of these wars are to, to punish sin. Although God is giving this region to Israel to fulfill his promise to them, God is not capricious. He is not, um, he, he just doesn't just do things. He is intentional. God is not only fulfilling his promise to Israel, but he is punishing the wickedness of the ites, okay? And follow me, I'll show you. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, we're looking at verses 1 and then verses 4 and 5. Hear Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. 
It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is giving this land to Israel and causing the destruction and dispossession of the land of the people because the people who lived on that land were wicked. God is actually demonstrating grace towards Israel and he's fulfilling his promise towards Israel while also punishing the sinfulness of the inhabitants of the land. It was their wickedness that led to this destruction. And because God does not want Israel to take on the wickedness and the corruption of the people, the people must be destroyed. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. Verses 16 through 18. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. You see, the destruction was necessary to prevent Israel from becoming corrupted by the wicked ways of the inhabitants. Some of these things we talked about last week with Pastor Peter, if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see all the laws. God says that these are the reasons that he's casting out the nations from this land. They not only defiled themselves, but they defiled the land, and God will not tolerate it. And he doesn't want Israel to be corrupted by living alongside of them. God had to punish the inhabitants of the land because of their sinfulness. This is how seriously God takes sin. Sin is like a weed. If you don't pull it out by the root, it will continue to fester and grow. As Christians, we have to be as serious about sin in our lives, getting to the root of it and destroying it as God is. There may be some places that you can't go anymore, some things you can't do anymore because it leads you to temptation and to stumble. You may have to remove some people from your life, some habits from your life. You can't dabble in sin because it will corrupt. Like Israel, God wants to protect us from the defilement of sin. But if you know the story of Israel, you know that even though God demands their holiness, Israel still fails. They do not completely annihilate the people and they do take on the ways of some of the nations. And if you read the book of Judges, you'll see that they just kind of continue in this downward spiral. And so Israel, themselves faces punishment from God. But it doesn't come in the same way. God uses other nations to punish Israel. Israel is conquered because of their own disobedience. First, the northern kingdom of Israel will be captured and taken, and the people are scattered because Israel began to worship idols. They sacrificed their children. They started practicing divination. They sold themselves into evil. So God had Assyria come and capture them and force the people off the land. 
The same would happen to the southern region of Israel called Judah. They were unfaithful to God and allowed the temple to be corrupted. They corrupted God's temple. And God had sent prophets like he did with the northern kingdom, but they rejected them and they mocked them. And so God allowed Babylon to invade Israel, destroy the temple, and take the people into exile. God used foreign nations, Babylon and Israel, to punish Israel through war because of Israel's sinfulness. But here's the grace of God. As much as the Old Testament shows us that God sometimes initiates war and he does so for a purpose, either to fulfill a promise or to punish sinfulness, the Old Testament also shows us that God does not delight in war. Not at all. He actually wants us to live. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. We're looking at verses 23, 25 through 27, and 32. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And almost as if God knows that we're going to say, but God, God, what about? Look at verse 25. He says, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here, you Israelites, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Verse 32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. You see, some of us are uncomfortable with conversations around death and destruction in the Bible because, especially when we think that it's initiated by God, because it seems to run counter to what we believe about God. God is loving, God is kind, he is forgiving and long-suffering, and he is. But God is also holy, and God is just. God doesn't want to punish us. He didn't want to punish Israel or other nations, but a holy God is not going to stand around and allow wickedness to continue. A just God must punish wickedness. But because God is holy and because he is just and because he is loving and kind, he does give Israel and the other nations and even us time to repent. He says, if you turn from your wickedness, you will live. This is how he demonstrates his grace and his mercy. This is what he told the people of Israel. That's why he sent the prophets. Read Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses, excuse me, Micah and Amos, all of the prophets. The prophets are God's messengers to Israel, telling them, warning them, turn from sin and back to God. And he warns us. 
He pleads with us. This is why he sent Jesus. He doesn't want us to die because of our sin. He wants us to live. He wants us to put our trust in his son, Jesus. He wants us to turn and to repent from our sinfulness. He wants to cover us by the blood of his son who died for our sins. If we would believe, just like Israel, he tells us, repent and live. God does not delight in war. He doesn't want us to be destroyed. He wants us to live. But what about the New Testament? We don't see the same sort of destruction and fighting that we do in the Old Testament. Did God change? No, God does not change. He still is fulfilling his promises and he does so through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus both fulfills the promise of God and he gives us an opportunity to live. And God is not, excuse me, and Jesus is not inconsistent with God. They are one and the same. In the New Testament, things have changed for Israel. They are under Roman occupation. They are now an occupied people. So how do an occupied people respond to war? Jesus doesn't really talk about war too much, but the closest we get to it is the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to chapter five. Matthew chapter five, that is. Matthew chapter five, verses 38 through 39 and 43 through 44. Matthew 5, 38 through 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When conflict erupts, Jesus says, do not resist evil. Do not retaliate. He says, we're not even to hate our enemies. We are to love them. He says the true mark of Christian discipleship is not how much you love the people who love you, but how much you love your enemies. This is what separates Christians from non-Christians. Jesus demonstrates this himself. He didn't retaliate or resist when he is arrested. In fact, when Peter pulls out a sword and chops off the ear of the soldier who came to arrest him, what does Jesus say? He says, put away that sword because those of you who live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus had the power to call down legions of angels to come to his defense, but he chose not to. He didn't retaliate when he was spat upon, when he was mocked, when they gave him a cross to bear and a crown of thorns to wear on his head. He didn't fight back when he was crucified. And yet Jesus seems to recognize that war is inevitable in a broken world. There was military during Jesus's day. The Roman soldiers interacted with the people of Israel. And Jesus tells the disciples, don't be surprised when you hear about wars and rumors of war. Don't be surprised when nations rise up against nations and kingdoms against kingdom. That's not the, the end, that is the beginning of the end. 
be forewarned, war is inevitable. But at the same time, Jesus seems to distinguish between the church and the state, the church and government. When asked whether the people of Israel should pay taxes, Jesus says, yes. Give to Caesar those things that are Caesar's and to God those things that are God's. Paul will later say in Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, verse one, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The government is an agent of God. Even if we don't agree with who is in that position. If we look at Old Testament history, we see that God will even use his enemies to fulfill his purposes. Babylon and Assyria, he used to punish Israel as a consequence of their sin. God can use governments for his purpose. And then Paul continues in verses three and four. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants against, excuse me, they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul says that God gives the authority to governments to bear the sword, to enforce law and to maintain order. And if you're doing the right thing, you shouldn't have a problem. But if not, the government has the right to use force to restrict evil and to punish evil. They can use force to prevent evil from furthering and to punish evil when it has already begun. Now, how far this extends is not addressed. For example, we don't know if governments can only do this like with their own people or can they go into other countries? That's the question that we often have about the United States. Are we to police the world or to remain only focused on what's going on in America? So what does all of this mean for us? What are we to make of war? Is it okay for Russia to invade Ukraine? Was it okay for the United States to go into Iraq after 9-11? When is war okay? Is war ever okay? This is where we need to ask for a big dose of humility and God's wisdom as Christians. See, the wars described in the Old Testament were considered holy wars because they were initiated by God. They were purposeful and part of his plan. And we have to ask ourselves, is that still the case today? Because sadly, Christians at times have been on the wrong side of this. The Crusades were the result of humanity believing they were participating in a holy war. Manifest destiny in this country was considered God-ordained. Many of you don't realize it, but Metro Community Church is a part of a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church. 
And they had these annual meetings. And last year at the annual meeting, there was a resolution that was passed of which Metro was very proud to sign on to. And it repudiated what's known as the doctrine of discovery. Let me summarize for you what that is. The doctrine of discovery um, was uh, a, a, a number of what they call papal bulls, which are letters from the Pope that were written during the 15th century. It gave um, people, the, gave explorers um, encouragement to explore lands that non-Christians lived on. This is how Columbus came to discover America, right? Because he had the authority of the state and he had the authority of the church to do so. The Catholic Church issued this, and they're considered an instrument of God. And though this went on centuries ago, we know that it still has an effect. Look at what it has done to the Native American population in our country. The Crusades, the Doctrine of Discovery, Manifest Destiny were all considered God-ordained actions. And the problem is that it presupposes that some people are the chosen people of God and other people's aren't. But the gospel is available to all who will receive it. So we've got to be careful when we name something a holy war and make sure that we are not being tainted by desire for land or power or wealth and we're not just using the word of God for our own selfish gain. So, when we hear of wars breaking out, how do we respond? Are we pacifists, like the Mennonites and the Amish and the Quakers who embody love for neighbor and enemy by refusing to participate in war? They say, I don't care no matter what. There's never a reason to go to war. They look at Matthew chapter five and they say, no, God demands nonviolence. Then there are those who believe in just war. And just war Christians embody love for neighbor by saying, I will lay down my life for my friend. They believe that God gives the government a role and that we are to support the human government. They look at Romans 13 and they say that there are times when the government must stop in, step in, like in World War II against Hitler or during the Civil War here in the United States against slavery. So for us, in a world filled with war, what should we do? I'm not gonna tell you to be a pacifist. I'm not gonna tell you to be a proponent of just war because they're both biblical. You can decide in your heart what is right for you. But there are some things that we can agree on what do we do? How do we respond in a world filled with war? Number one, pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. If you believe that Putin should not have invaded Ukraine, 
It's not just enough to post about it. It's not just enough to send money, which is good. You need to pray for Putin. You need to pray for Zelensky. If we are rightfully worried about North Korea, we need to be praying for Kim Jong-un. If you are concerned about how the United States may react or what our involvement might be, we need to pray about it. As Christians, we are called to pray for our leaders. And we think sometimes that prayer is ineffective, like we're not doing anything if we pray. pray prayer is warfare. It is spiritual warfare. As Christians, we should be praying for all of our leaders, our mayors, our school board, all the way up to the president. In fact, we can't just pray for like the people in our community. We need to be praying for what's going on in like Kentucky and Idaho because the things that they do there affect us too. If we desire to live a life of peace, we have to pray for our leaders who are in positions of influence. Pray that they have wisdom. Pray that they have discernment. Pray that they have um, a heart set on peace. Pray most of all for their salvation. That they will listen and heed the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we have to pray for our leaders. Second, we respond to a world filled with war by being peacemakers. We have to be peacemakers. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Jesus invites us to become peacemakers. Now for most of us, this doesn't mean that we are negotiating peace between world leaders. You might be negotiating peace between your children, right? You might be negotiating peace between your parents. Where is there conflict breaking out in your world? And how can you be a peacemaker? Is it in your family? Is it on your job? Are we teaching our children to love peace or to be fascinated by war and violence? When confronted with the option to retaliate, when somebody says something they should not have said, can you bite your tongue? When someone cuts you off on Route 4, bless their hearts <laughs> and let God handle them, right? Respond with peace. And this doesn't mean that you just lay down in the face of injustice. Absolutely not. We are to resist injustice, but we do so peaceably. We think of people like Martin Luther King. But if you're thinking, what is the point of being a peacemaker when there's so much violence in the world? The point of peace is that it disrupts violence. It stops the cycle. It sends a message to the enemy that I am not participating in your game and I'm not using your tools. Some of you might recall back in 2006, there was a tragic um, case in um, an Amish country in Pennsylvania. A man walked into a one-room schoolhouse and shot 10 little girls, ages six through 13. Five of them were killed, and then he murdered himself. It was beyond tragic, especially because it was a small, insular Amish community. But do you remember how they responded? 
Not only did they publicly forgive the shooter, but they embraced his family. They comforted his widow and his parents and his in-laws. And the way they loved that community, and excuse me, the way they loved that man's family, and the forgiveness and the commitment to peace they showed was so profound that not only did it confuse the world, the rest of us Christians were looking at them like, what in the world? In response to the way they loved on them, his widow wrote this, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. There is a way of peace that can transform this world if we are willing to be peacemakers. So as Christians, we respond to this war-filled world by living, uh, by, by praying for our leaders, by being peacemakers, and finally, remembering the sovereignty of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. God is still in control. Now, even after this sermon, some of you might still cringe when you read some of this stuff in the Bible. And you might shake your head. Trust the sovereignty of God. Trust God's ways. Even when we don't fully understand it, God does not operate outside of a purpose. He is always striving toward his end. God knows what he's doing. Our minds are finite and we can't really comprehend all of the fullness of who God is. Think about it. We might live on this earth if we're lucky, if God blesses us, 70, 80, 90 years. This world has existed for millennia and God knows the fullness of what has happened and what will occur. The Bible reminds us as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may not always understand God's plan for the world or for our own lives, but we trust the sovereignty of a good and perfect God. We trust that God is still in control and at the end, he will be, at, he's always at work, even if we can't see it. It's not always easy to understand what is going on in our world. We look at all the chaos around us and it looks never ending. It's not just wars in Ukraine. There are like 27 wars going on in this world that we don't even know about. And it can feel a little overwhelming when you start to read about it and watch the news. But we can't fall into despair. We can't become disheartened. We can't um, be overwhelmed by it because we believe in a sovereign God. Amen. There is nothing that is out of God's control. Amen. There's nothing scary or unknown to him. The Bible says that he is above all things and before all things. We just sang about him being the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He knows how this world will end, and guess what? He wins. 
and those of us in relationship with him, we win too. This world with all its wars and conflict is not the end of this story. God and his sovereignty will win. And for all the mess that we've made of this world, God will still create a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no death and there will be no war and there will be no pain and there will be no suffering and destruction. All this old mess that we have created will pass away. And that's really where God desires for us to live. Amen. Not in this world of war, but in his place of peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we are just confused by the wars in the word, by the wars in the world. And God, our hearts long for peace. And so God, we pray for our leaders, everyone from the school board and mayor and planning boards of our towns all the way up to the president. And God, we pray for leaders around the world. God, we pray for the people who are advising the leaders around the world. God, we pray first for their salvation, that they will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And not just become saved, God, but want to live a life devoted to you, God. That they would be um, moved by the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that they would be lovers of peace. That they would care for the common good. God, we pray that you would remove those people who were devoted only to power, only to greed, only to control, God. And instead replace them with people who love you and who want to serve you and to serve your people, God. And God, we pray for the people in our congregation who may not have to negotiate between world leaders, but might have to negotiate some stuff in their own homes and some stuff in their families, God, some stuff in their, their jobs, Lord. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to resist the urge to fight back with words, with actions. Help us to disrupt peace even in our own small way, God. And Lord, when we can't understand it all, and when we have more questions than answers, would you help us to trust in your sovereignty? Would you help us to trust that you are good, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are just, that you are holy, that there is a purpose and a plan and you are all in it, God. Help us to trust you more, God. We offer this prayer to you today. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.